High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And today, we bring you yet another episode in our ongoing series about famous people during times of war or Star Wars. In today's episode, we're going to talk about two major multi-hyphenate stars each of whom, alone and together, had a major impact on soldiers fighting in World War II. Bob Hope and Bing Crosby made seven films together, and the pair was far more prolific as guests on one another's radio and TV shows and as competitors in charity golf tournaments. Alone and together, they defined a cultural sensibility that was about as current as it got in the late 1930s through the 40s, and about as dated as you can imagine a couple of decades later. A major part of Bob Hope's lasting legacy was his dedication to performing for the troops, which began during World War II and, as we'll see, grew out of his vaudeville roots. 
A perhaps overlooked aspect of Bing Crosby's legacy is the role one of his signature songs played in sustaining the morale of the Allies throughout the fight. These men were famously comic rivals, which makes their very different contributions to the war effort all the more fascinating. Join us, won't you, for the story of Bing Crosby versus Bob Hope. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. Harry Lillis Crosby, nicknamed Bing as a little boy, was born in 1903 in Tacoma, Washington. A few weeks later, Leslie Towns Hope was born in London. Leslie rechristened himself Bob in 1929, thinking it would help his prospects as a vaudeville performer if he went by a more approachable, less evidently patrician name. By that point, Bing Crosby was already a singing star who was in the process of changing what pop music sounded like, permanently. Prior to this point, the great singers had voices for opera halls and concert houses. Music was a power game. Bing Crosby was the first popular song artist to use the relatively new invention of the microphone as an instrument. Bing's voice was intimate, conversational. It could be haunting and it was often seductive. One of his early hits was Temptation, which he introduced in the 1933 Marion Davies film, Going Hollywood. You came, I was alone, I should have known, you were temptation. You smiled, luring me on, my heart was gone, you were temptation, it would be thrilling, if you were willing, if it can never be. Young Bing Crosby was a mega heartthrob. The culture of the 1930s was rife with jokes, with a touch of serious paranoia, that his voice was enough to lure previously straight-laced wives away from their happy homes. And while it's maybe hard to imagine today, back then, there was a real air of danger to him. He was known as being kind of a virtuoso when it came to being able to sing any genre. 
And what that really meant in the 1930s was that he was the first white male superstar singer to bring jazz, swing, and blues inflections, in other words, black singing styles, into mainstream pop music. He could also be a literal menace to society. The same year Bob changed his name, Bing drunkenly crashed his car into the front wall of the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. He was arrested, and when the judge asked him if he knew about a little thing called prohibition, Bing said, Sure, but nobody pays much attention to it. He was sentenced to 60 days in jail and ended up serving about 20. Bing and Bob first met about three years later, when both were booked on the same bill at the Friars Club in New York. They immediately hit it off, coming up with spontaneous gags to insert in between songs and repairing together to bars or pool halls between shows. At this point, Bob was working steadily in vaudeville and on Broadway, and Bing, already a recording and radio star, was on the verge of starring in his first big film, The Big Broadcast. Six years later, Bob would make his own film debut in the third sequel to The Big Broadcast, called The Big Broadcast of 1938. It may have been Bing's sloppy seconds, and Hope was such a newbie when it came to performing for a camera that director Mitchell Lyson had to remind the actor to use his eyes to convey emotion. But the film gave Bob a chance to sing Thanks for the Memory, which became his signature song. In the movie, Hope sings the song as a duet with actress Shirley Ross, who plays his ex-wife. Strictly and renew, darling, how are you? And how are all those little dreams that never did come true? Awfully glad I met you. Cheerio and toodaloo. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bing and Bob were both under contract at Paramount, a studio whose persona sort of split the difference between the glossy star factory of MGM and the more down-to-earth, socially conscious Warner Brothers. Paramount had big stars like Cary Grant and Marlena Dietrich, and they supported stylish directors who we'd now recognize as auteurs— but they made most of their money from cheap-to-produce comedies starring former vaudevillians and radio personalities. Paramount wasn't known for making the arrival of a new star into an event the way MGM would, so Hope hired his own publicist upon his arrival in Hollywood in 1937 to ensure his name and face were in the papers as much as possible. That publicist set up a charity golf tournament between Bob and Bing as a photo op, and Paramount soon realized there was something special in the chemistry between these two overgrown boys, each of whom now had their own radio shows with big followings. The studio soon cast Bing and Bob in The Road to Singapore, a comedy which began shooting on Paramount's Hollywood lot, nearly 9,000 miles east of Singapore, in October 1939. Road to Singapore was based on an old script that had been kicking around at Paramount for years. But once on set, Bing and Bob quickly made it their own. They had their joke writers from their radio shows help them punch up what was on the page, 
And then, once the camera was rolling, Bing and Bob would riff with and off of each other, trying to make the crew members crack up. In this way, they approached filmmaking like a live show, like vaudeville. Bing and Bob would do whatever it took to get a laugh, often at the expense of character coherence or narrative logic. When the film's original screenwriters showed up on set to watch the filming, they were stunned as Bing and Bob threw out most of what they had written. Hope helpfully advised them, if you recognize any of your lines, yell bingo! The Road to Singapore has more plot than the subsequent six road movies that Bing and Bob would make together over the next 22 years. But otherwise, the template for all of the films is relatively the same. There's Bing, there's Bob, there's a girl, usually Dorothy L'Amour, and there's an exotic location, serving as a crucible for xenophobic gags. Within the duo act, Bing is essentially the alpha male. He's always the cool guy in control of whatever scheme or plan the two have going, and the nervous Nellie Bob is always at his mercy. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given this dynamic, Bing almost always got the girl. Over the course of these half-dozen movies, three of which were released before the end of the war to massive box office success, Bing and Bob conquered all corners of the third world, all the while manically spoofing the pop culture of their day. If modern audiences have trouble connecting to films like The Road to Utopia and The Road to Morocco, part of that owes to the fact that Bing and Bob inserted so many topical in-jokes. With their constant fourth wall breaking and recycling of references, the road movies were sort of the stepping stone between the Marx Brothers and the spoof movies of Mel Brooks and the Zucker Brothers. The road movies made Bob Hope's career, and they reinvigorated Bing's by introducing him to a younger audience. Bing and Bob's careers and lives thus became inextricably intertwined, but they weren't friends off-camera. On their radio shows and later on TV, they fanned the flames of one another's popularity by mercilessly ribbing and mocking one another, fueling the idea of a gentleman's feud for decades. The feud was in good humor, but it sustained because it was pretty evidently based in something real. Bob and Bing could each look at the other and see greener grass on the other side. It's easy to see why Bob would have been envious of Bing, Bing was, of course, initially more famous, and famous first, and he was also eventually considered to be an actual actor, whereas Bob was essentially a stand-up comedian before stand-up comedy was a thing. But there were more subtle reasons why Bing would have felt competitive with Bob. Bob was known as the easiest-going actor in Hollywood, while Bing was considered difficult to work with, if you could even get him off the golf course or the barstool to show up for work in the first place. Bing lived a kind of double life. Crosby was a huge Hollywood star who had problems with authority and no respect for the Hollywood system. He embodied the upstanding American man on screen, while off screen, he felt little to no responsibility to his work. He just wanted to get the day's work done in as little time and as few takes as possible so that he could get back on the golf course. He was a mostly fun drunk, married to a not-so-fun drunk, former singer Dixie Lee. He was an unforgiving, tough love bordering on abusive father to sons, some of whom, the family later speculated, were born with fetal alcohol syndrome. 
and never seemed to be able to live up to their father's expectations. One of the four sons from Crosby's first marriage went on to write a scathing tell-all about Bing after his death. Two of the others, Lindsay and Dennis Crosby, both killed themselves in their 50s with gunshots to the head. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Y-M-R-T. Meanwhile, Bob Hope had an incredibly supportive wife, Dolores, who quietly put up with Bob's philandering because she considered it to be her personal life's work to play her role in the Bob Hope career. And Bob lived to be famous in as many mediums as possible. And in addition to Dolores, he had huge staffs of people working to help him craft a persona as the regular Joe's man in Hollywood, a massive celebrity who could detach himself from the celebrity industrial complex. Bob was beloved in part because it seemed like he was stepping outside of being famous to make jokes about being famous. But he actually cherished his own celebrity, and he worked really hard to maintain it. Conversely, Bing thought celebrity was a chore, and he was almost disdainful of his fans, at least in private. By the early 1940s, Bob was definitely a legitimate rival for Bing's radio audience and for the role of surrogate fraternity brother to the nation. After being around for so long, what would it have been like for Bing to see Bob suddenly show up and become so well-liked? Particularly since Hope surely owed at least some of his early popularity to his association with Bing. The Oscars loom large in the legend of the Hope-Crosby rivalry. Hope started hosting the Academy Awards in 1940, and he hosted 19 times over the next 40 years, becoming by most standards the quintessential MC of what today seems like an impossible event to host well. 
Hope was with the Oscars through their transition from private Hollywood dinner party to radio broadcast to television event. And it was his mastering of these ceremonies that made the industry's biggest night ready for prime time. Like most Oscar hosts, Bob Hope never came close to winning a competitive Oscar, although the Academy found four excuses to give him honorary awards, beginning in 1941 with a recognition for his charity work. Bing won one competitive Oscar for playing a priest in Leo McCary's Going My Way in 1944. This was against typecasting for an actor known to have four kids and a taste for carousing, but Bing downplayed the achievement quipping that he only won because all of the good actors were off at war. For his part, Bob was presented at the same ceremony with an honorary lifetime membership in the Academy, and in accepting it, he cracked, I guess I got the consolation prize. But the fact was that Crosby was taken seriously as a performer with range in a way that Hope wasn't, and the disrespect Hope supposedly felt from the Academy gave him one of his running Oscar night gags. Here's a clip from the first televised Oscars in 1953. And it's a gay, handsome crowd here tonight, but there's an undercurrent of nervousness. The whole thing is like a big maternity ward. (laughs) Everybody's expecting. (laughs) And keep your eyes on the losers tonight as they applaud the winners. You'll see great understanding, great sportsmanship, great acting. Some of the losers take it pretty hard. Last year, one actor tried to kill himself by jumping off Gary Cooper. (laughs) Fortunately, my parachute opened just in time. But I have been master of ceremonies at five or six of these affairs, and I get a big kick out of it. And of course, I like to be here just in case. (laughs) You can never tell. Some year, there might be one left over. (laughs) Look at those Oscars. Isn't that something? Huh? Looks like Betty Davis's garage. <laughs> no, I think it's rather silly. I mean, all this fuss about winning one of those Oscars. What are they? Just a bookend with a sneer. In 1940, Hope filmed four movies, all of which were released in 1941, including Road to Zanzibar and the war-themed comedy Caught in the Draft. All four films would be amongst the top 20 grossing films of the year. Bing only had two films on that chart, including Zanzibar. Incredibly, given that he was already more than a decade into his film career, Crosby's movie Superstardom was still to come. But 1941 would be a defining year for both Bing and Bob because of the different ways in which they used the power of their individual stardom to contribute to the coming war. Perhaps surprisingly, Bob Hope had to be talked into doing his first USO show. With Caught in the Draft due to come out in theaters in June 1941, the producer of Hope's NBC radio show suggested they plan a live broadcast from a military base. Hope thought it would be a pain in the ass to, quote, drag the whole show down there. But his producer reminded him that the troops were a captive audience and the target audience for his new movie. If nothing else, they'd get a great live laugh track. As it turned out, just as the thrill of playing to a crowd had influenced the Hope and Crosby movies, Hope found that once he had seen what playing to a crowd of servicemen could add to his radio show, 
he didn't want to go back to the studio. And so the Bob Hope Show went on a mini tour of Southern California bases that stretched into that summer. These radio shows were broadcast nationally to a huge audience, way, way more people than would be watching a hit primetime TV show today. By taking Americans to military bases with his radio show, Hope helped normalize the idea of war to an American audience that wasn't yet at war, and which until recently had been fiercely divided along isolationist versus interventionist lines. Bob Hope became the celebrity link between men in uniform and the rest of America's living rooms. From late January 1941 until the end of the war, Hope's radio show was broadcast from military bases almost every week. He joined the Hollywood Victory Caravan, a fundraising tour where Hope performed alongside Cary Grant, Groucho Marx, Betty Grable, and other major stars. And when the caravan ended, Hope stayed on the road, performing at bases throughout the U.S. With his radio show on hiatus during the summer of 1943, Bob took his act overseas using his quote-unquote vacation to perform for troops in Britain and North Africa. Visiting Morocco months after the release of the latest road film, Road to Morocco, Hope found himself dodging air raids, a danger they hadn't tried to replicate on the Paramount lot. In London, he saw firsthand the effects of the war on everyday life in a way in which they weren't apparent in the U.S. When he realized there was no soap in his hotel room, he called the front desk and was told... Sorry, sir, but there's no soap in the king's bathroom either. When Hope returned to Hollywood, he was given a hero's welcome. He and Crosby settled into the production of their latest team-up, the Alaska-set Road to Utopia. But Bob had found his real passion in entertaining the troops, and he still did it at every opportunity. It's easy to see what the soldiers got from Hope's tireless efforts— and maybe even easier to be cynical about what Hope got in return. The troops were a captive audience, desperate for entertainment and distraction, and Hope was able to bolster his own reputation by clearing this relatively low bar easily and elegantly. As Hope wrote in one of his memoirs, you had to be pretty lousy to flop in front of those guys. It was, in other words, the opposite of a tough crowd, even when the tours themselves were challenging which they were. Hope contracted jungle rot on a tour through the South Pacific. He had to ditch all of his luggage in a nail-biting emergency plane landing over the waters of Australia. And he braved dangerously frigid conditions in Alaska to perform for the troops there, sometimes setting up outside with a tree stump for a stage. But Hope also blatantly used his reputation as the USO tour guy to publicly force Paramount's hand when he decided they weren't paying him commensurate with his value to the studio. In the fall of 1944, Hope refused to accept his next two picture assignments. And when the studio suspended him, Bob went to the press to spread the word that he was too busy supporting the troops to film Paramount's piddling little films. In 1945, Paramount and Hope finally settled on a new contract that would allow him to make films through an independent production company, and thus keep a much larger chunk of the profits. During World War II, Bob Hope was perhaps the Hollywood star who made the most personal commitment to entertaining the troops, to the extent that he answered every military fan letter himself with an individualized response. And after World War II, when most other stars went back to their regular lives, 
Pope essentially had the military market to himself. But in the early 1940s, Hope was not the only star to offer, well, hope to the boys overseas. Like Bob, Bing performed in USO shows during the war. He went to Europe on his own summer break in August 1944 and did four impromptu shows a day for the 10,000 soldiers on the boat with him for the five-day passage across the Atlantic. But by then, Crosby had already colonized the American Armed Forces' hearts through song. In 1941, Irving Berlin walked into the office of his music secretary and announced that he had written a new song. Berlin boasted, not only is it the best song I've ever written, it's the best song anybody's ever written. It would quickly become the most lucrative song anybody to this date has ever written. Just like the ones I used to know. The idea for White Christmas came to Berlin sometime during the late 1930s. America's most famous songwriter, Berlin spent a lot of time in Los Angeles working on movies, including several Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers musicals. But he customarily returned to New York to spend Christmas with his family, who were secular Jews who loved the majesty of a giant Christmas tree, stocked stockings, and a table with all the trimmings. This family time became all the more important after 1928, when Berlin's baby son, born on December 1st of that year, died 24 days later. But in 1937, Berlin couldn't get away for the holidays during the production of the film Alexander's Ragtime Band. There's speculation that Berlin began writing White Christmas during this distinctly non-white holiday season in Beverly Hills. In fact, the song originally included a first verse, which Berlin later ordered struck from the song's sheet music, that would seem to be autobiographical. The sun is shining, the grass is green, the orange and palm trees sway. There's never been such a day in Beverly Hills, L.A. But it's December the 24th. And I am longing to be up north. In any case, Berlin seems to have put White Christmas aside until the holiday season of 1940. If he had originally intended the song to be something of a sophisticated satire of an old-fashioned sentimental holiday song— the version Berlin presented to his secretary just after the holidays embraced nostalgia with a straight face. This change in the attitude of White Christmas mirrored a change in the culture. Some of Berlin's biggest hits of the 1930s were popularized in movies by Fred Astaire, whose characters were basically elegant but cynical swindlers who distracted Depression-era audiences with fantasies of impossible luxury and unlikely romance. By early 1941, much of the world had been at war for almost two years, and Americans were starting to realize that their own entry into the fight against fascism was probably not far off on the horizon. 
the national mood was more somber and more sincere. There was a collective longing for simpler times. In April 1941, before anyone had heard White Christmas other than Berlin's closest advisors, Berlin met with Mark Sandrich, who had directed the most successful Astaire Berlin collaboration, Top Hat. Berlin told Sandrich about his new song and suggested they work together on a film which would put White Christmas into context. Berlin had an idea for a story that would perfectly encapsulate this change in the national mood. It would be about a Manhattan singing star who tires of the lush life and decides to go back to the land, buying a farm in upstate New York, which he turns into a resort open only on holidays, when he presents holiday-themed reviews. Sandrich agreed on the spot to direct the film, which would be called Holiday Inn. But as negotiations continued, Berlin had a caveat. He'd only sign his contract if Bing Crosby would sign on to star. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. In addition to being a major movie star, Bing Crosby had essentially invented the pop Christmas carol. It started in 1935, when Crosby's record producer had talked him into recording a split single of two standards, Adeste Fidelas and Silent Night. This became a huge hit, the first pop renditions of Christmas songs to show commercial potential. The idea of a Crosby Christmas single thus became an annual tradition. This made Crosby the obvious choice to sing White Christmas, but also his connection to the national holiday, which was beginning at that time to transcend religious lines, made him the perfect fit for Holiday Inn's hero. Holiday Inn would pit Crosby's Jim against Ted, a scheming dancer played by Fred Astaire. Over the course of the film, Ted would steal away Linda, Jim's girlfriend and partner in his holiday reviews, luring her to Hollywood to star in a film based on Jim's Inn. In its own way, Holiday Inn is just as meta as the road movies. It's just more adaptation than airplane. 
throughout were to understand that the correct romantic choice for Linda is Jim, the guy who has rejected the fast city life for a big house and a nice piece of land, which he uses to share his love for American holidays. When, at the end of the film, Linda abandons the Hollywood facsimile for the real thing, the transition is complete. From the decadence and loss of values of the 1930s, represented by Astaire, to the idea of a new, old-fashioned, patriotic America, represented by Crosby. This is where I have to pause and say two things about Holiday Inn. First, I love it. Like Irving Berlin, I am a secular Jew who loves Christmas, and Holiday Inn is my favorite Christmas movie. The second thing we have to talk about is that, despite the fact that both Bing Crosby and Irving Berlin had pretty stellar records when it came to supporting racial integration and civil rights in their personal lives, it's absolutely fair to accuse Holiday Inn of being a little bit racist. Its only black characters are highly caricatured servants, and this becomes really conspicuous in the film's President's Day weekend sequence, in which Crosby's Jim puts on blackface and sings a song about the emancipation of the slaves while dressed as Abraham Lincoln. In the middle of this clip, you'll hear a verse sung by Crosby's character's black maid, played by Louise Beavers, and her little son, played by Shelby Bacon, who are watching the blackface performance from the kitchen. Abraham, Abraham. In 1860, he became the 16th president. And now he's in the Hall of Fame, a most respected gem. That's why we celebrate this blessed February day. Abraham! Abraham! When black folks lived in slavery, who was it set the darky free? Abraham! That's right, child. Abraham! When troubles come down from the shelf, whose heart was bigger than himself, Abraham. Yeah, me. Abraham. The country's going to the dogs. They shouted loud and strong. Then from a cabin made out of logs, the right man came along. And that is why we celebrate this blessed February day. Now, the history of blackface in white Hollywood musicals is a complicated one, but suffice it to say, its use in Holiday Inn is at once probably not malicious in its intent and also absolutely emblematic of the blinkered white privilege perspective of the time. This stuff is the definition of problematic, to the point that most modern television broadcasts of Holiday Inn cut the President's Day sequence completely. And as cringeworthy as it is, that's in a way unfortunate, because it diminishes Holiday Inn's impact as a time capsule. 
Holiday Inn's unexamined racial issues are yet another aspect that makes the film absolutely a snapshot of its very specific historical moment. And sidebar. Pre-production and pre-recording of songs for Holiday Inn began in late 1941. As was typical for him, Bing nailed his recording of White Christmas in two takes. The song was debuted to the public a few weeks later on Crosby's radio show on Christmas Eve, less than three weeks after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. It took a while to catch on. Even when Holiday Inn opened in movie theaters in August, eventually drumming up enough business to become the eighth highest grossing film of 1942, sales of the White Christmas single were yet to confirm Berlin's suspicion that this was the best song ever written. Maybe this was because Berlin himself had ordered that the song be held back from radio play until closer to the holiday season. But then, in September, White Christmas started selling, despite its total lack of promotion. By October, Billboard had named it one of the most phenomenal hits in the history of the music business. What had changed? To put it simply, as Berlin did, the boys overseas are buying it. The boys did more than buy it. They requested White Christmas in droves on armed services radio. They punched it up on jukeboxes in USO halls. And they demanded the record's inclusion in care packages from home. Before Holiday Inn had come out, Berlin had actually thought about trying to write a new verse that referenced the war directly. But it's a good thing he didn't. Perhaps one of the reasons why White Christmas so appealed to World War II infantrymen was that unlike the host of war-themed novelty songs on the charts, it didn't try to pander to them by putting the specifics of their situations into words. And as such, it was much better able to reflect the inchoate sense of longing and heartsickness that afflicted not just the boys overseas, but nearly everyone in the fall of 1942, when virtually every American, and anyone in any part of the world affected by the war, could only dream of a Christmas like the ones they used to know. White Christmas became a new American anthem, appealing not just to the feelings of a specific moment, but also depicting the very idea of American life as a narrative, with an idyllic past, a troubled present, and a hopefully bright future. It's an overused phrase, but White Christmas really did remind the soldiers what they were fighting for. In November, White Christmas knocked another song of the moment, Praise the Lord and Pass the Ammunition, off of the top of the hit parade. Crosby's rendition of Berlin's song thus began an unprecedented hit streak. It was the top-selling single of 1942 and 1943, and 1944. By 1947, the master recording of the song had been pressed so many times that it wore out, and Crosby had to record a new version. It became the highest-selling single of all time, and it still is today. Every time it's been toppled from that perch, such as by phenoms like Elton John's Candle in the Wind, another Christmas rolls around, and White Christmas climbs right back on top. In Crosby's travels during the war, it was the most requested song by far. Crosby later recalled that every time he'd sing it on the field of battle for the troops, he'd look out into the crowd 
and realize that all of the warriors were crying. This memory would be dramatized in the 1954 film White Christmas. Planned as a kind of sequel to Holiday Inn, White Christmas became its own beast when Fred Astaire read the script and declined to sign on. Danny Kaye was cast in his place. White Christmas is a cheesy VistaVision confection, pleasant to watch thanks to its leads, including a spunky Rosemary Clooney, but most of it is a kind of forgettable romantic roundelay. Most of it after the prologue. Though it's mostly set after the war, White Christmas begins on Christmas Eve 1944, with Kay and Crosby and a makeshift band performing a routine for troops on an unidentified battlefield. We learn from an offstage conversation that this regiment is going to the front the very next morning. Crosby starts singing White Christmas to a sparse music box accompaniment, almost drowned out by the sounds of bombs going off in the distance. The boys in the crowd listen with their heads down, as if embarrassed to let one another see their misty eyes. After the song ends, we realize that Bing and Danny aren't USO performers. They're members of the regiment. They're going into battle, too. Of all of Hollywood's depictions of the experience of World War II, I can't think of many that managed to convey such rich, conflicting emotion so elegantly as the prologue to White Christmas. When you watch that scene, you get a real sense of what it would have felt like in that situation to hear that song. White Christmas became the top-grossing film of 1954, reinvigorating the sales of the single once more. It wasn't the only triumph of Bing's acting career that year. He also earned an Oscar nomination, playing an alcoholic actor in The Country Girl, ten years after his win for Going My Way first established Bing as a real actor. In between, Crosby had spent the final five years of the 1940s as the top box office draw in the nation— And at the end of the decade, he was voted in a national poll as the most admired man in America. Hope's film career, if less distinguished, was at least as steadily profitable. But in 1955, both men dropped off the list of top movie stars, never to return. A new generation was coming in. The culture was now being driven by much younger actors like Marlon Brando who Crosby lost the Oscar to in 1954. Bob Hope would always have the troops, or at least he'd continue to dominate the field of military entertainment, into the Vietnam War. His Christmas special from Vietnam in 1970 would be the most watched television program of all time until the finale of MASH. But Vietnam and Hope's support of that controversial war also made it impossible to ignore how far Bob Hope had drifted from the sensibility that defined the culture. In 1975, when Saigon fell, the U.S. evacuation plan stipulated that Bing Crosby's recording of White Christmas would be played on armed services radio as the cue for soldiers to leave. As much as White Christmas was an anthem of inspiration during the Second World War, The song would be remembered by many as the soundtrack to the failure of the Vietnam War. Talk about adding insult to injury for Bob Hope. Vietnam would be Hope's downfall. And it was Bing fucking Crosby singing at the fade out. 
Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show, please spread the word. You can follow us on Twitter and tweet about the show. You can tweet about us and follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. And please rate and review us on iTunes. We haven't forgotten about your questions, which you submitted for our anniversary show. That show is tentatively scheduled for April 7th. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. I am dreaming, dreaming of a white White Christmas, you're just like the one that I used to know. Honey, it's where the treetops, treetops glisten. Little bitty, little bitty, little bitty children. Try to listen to hear Hear for the sleigh bells that are ringing in the snow. Oh, 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 o